Proverbs 20, verse 29. We'll be reading from Proverbs 20, verse 29 through 21, verse 31. The glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is their gray head. Blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. Getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. The violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. The way of a guilty man is perverse, but as for the pure, his work is right. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. When the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise, but... When the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. A gift in secret pacifies anger, and a bribe behind the back strong wrath. It is a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. There is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. He who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the trusted stronghold. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. He covets greedily all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with wicked intent? A false witness shall perish, but the man who hears him will speak endlessly. A wicked man hardens his face, but as for the upright, he establishes his way. 
There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. You may be seated. The themes of this chunk of text are power and justice. Power, the ability to do things, and justice, the requirement to do what is owed to each. It's broken into, you can see the the orange headers, we have a sort of double introduction. An introduction about the importance of education, which is the theme of the book, and an introduction about God's power over kings and God's judgment over all men by looking at their hearts. The main body calls us to consider the fact that righteousness and justice are better than worship. And so we are reminded of the relationship of the two. We're then taught to consider the injustice, the unrighteousness of the wicked as they do ordinary dominion work. In verses 4 through 8 is the consideration of the wicked when they pursue wealth and how it is done in an evil way. And so the idea of external virtues or of a sort of civil righteousness or a common grace manifestation, we're shown here that that is a false doctrine, that there is there are useful things that the wicked do in their dominion work, but there's certainly no righteous intent, and it is no good work in itself, though it might bring about ends that are useful to the righteous. Verse 9 serves as a sort of bridge, and we're brought to the contentious woman. And so the dominion work of the wicked man, and how he has wicked intent in pursuing wealth, we're reminded of the fact that the vast majority of violent crime is committed by men. And the vast majority of nagging is done by women. Now, we're reminded of the fact twice we have this problem of contentiousness presented between things. Dominion work of the wicked, the contentiousness of women, and then verse 10 through 18, we have the promise of the righteous triumphing over the wicked. And yet, we come back in verse 19 to the contentious wife. And so, there's this bridge, and the idea here, the connector over and over again, you know, there's a need to exercise power, there's a need to administer justice, and at the same time, that has to be done in the home. And so we think about the wicked man, but there's also the wicked woman. And the wicked man's actions, explicit criminal behavior, things that have sort of criminal punishments to them, things that become more public, that's something that occurs in the sort of public domain. And there's the destructiveness of the home that can be done by the woman. And so there's sort of this, here's the masculine way that this occurs, and here's the feminine way that this occurs. And there's this struggle to see that Justice rules both in the home and in the public sphere. Then, verses 20 through 29, we have the endurance of the righteous versus the instability, the death of the wicked. 
And so the perseverance of the righteous there, this grinding to dust of the wicked that occurs, and the grinding out of sin. And so we end up with the conclusion, verses 30 and 31. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The, the wickedness enacted against God, whether it's by the contentious woman, whether it's by the criminal and defrauding man, uh, whether it's the scoffer in the public sphere, there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against God. The righteous will endure and the righteous will triumph. And we're reminded that even though that's the case, it ends with the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. We're reminded, yes, God is sovereign, and yes, God gives the victory even when you do the things you're supposed to do, but you still need to put a horse in your a saddle on your horse. So do your duty, do your job. So that's the, the general outline. Here's power and justice. That's the theme throughout. There's the closing section. There's the introduction. So let's walk through it in more detail. So verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is their gray head. Blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. Now, it's that, really, it's the same phrase that we saw. Remember the previous section had the rooms of the belly. I mentioned to you that's sort of an, an Egyptian phrase um, that is referring to the inner man. So, the Bible is full of language like heart, reams, belly, uh, you know, mind, spirit. These are all the same thing. We are so influenced by Freudian psychology and we don't even know it. And so, I'm asking you to wage a war. I'm asking you to crush that. I want you to slaughter in your mind every last high place dedicated to Freud in your thoughts and words. I'm asking you to tear it down. The inner man is a unified thing. You think and you will with the same thing. It's the inner man. It's the mind. Willing, choosing is just the mind choosing. When you assent to a thing, you are willing to believe it. When you believe the thing, you are willing to believe it. Now, there's not some separation of the head and the heart, the bowels, the reins. These are all the inner man. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So what we're talking about here is the fact that external discipline helps to put the mind in order. It helps to put the inner man in order. It helps to change the order of your valuation. There's a relationship between virtue and reward and crime and punishment. And the crime and punishment that occurs makes us understand the relationship of pain to wickedness. And that's a disciplining thing. It's a teaching work of God. So the glory of the young man is his strength. And what's the danger of young men who are strong? That they would be brigands. That they would be criminals. That they would be a part of gangs. That they would devote their strength to wickedness. And what ought to be done is the strength of young men should be put into building and protecting, to doing justice, to supporting the righteous rulers. 
So the glory of young men is their strength. And that glory, young men, of your strength is made known when you put your work to do justice. When you give your strength to righteousness. When you devote yourself to glorifying God with your work. So the dominion work that you do in your youth to store up, to gather, to order, it should be devoted to wisdom. And the splendor of old men is their gray head. And we've talked about how the gray head is a sign of wisdom. And the gray head is a glorious thing when it is found in the way of righteousness. And so the gray head found in the way of righteousness shows an enduring wisdom. And the relationship of the two is talked about in verse 30. Blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. Blows that hurt cleanse away evil. Blows that hurt stripes cleanse the inner depths of the heart. The cleansing away of the evil is talking about the sort of external manifestation of the evil as well as the internal. It has the effect of changing behavior as well as the effect of changing the inner thoughts. And that makes sense because a change of behavior comes from the changing of thoughts. And so both occur. There's an external action. It changes things externally because it changes things internally. And so the wise who rule, the wise who possess positions of authority, the wise who have resources, should use those resources to train the young to dedicate their strength for righteousness. When the old take their positions of authority, their power, and they pursue personal peace, personal wealth, personal comfort, what you end up with, is what we are seeing. What we are seeing in our culture is the use of the most enormous store of wealth gathered in human history to pursue hedonism. And so people are just enjoying luxury as more and more lives are lived not even in quiet desperation anymore in loud, social media-published desperation. The use of those resources to teach and to discipline and to restrain wickedness and punishment, that is the division of labor that the gray heads are called to. So this is a division of labor statement that shows how the strength of the young and the old can be used well together. This is why age requirements on officers are put into play and why the young should take physical labor off of the old as the maximum for physical service in the temple. There's an age there as well. That maximum age for physical service in the temple is exemplified in the Levitical law. So the idea there is that you wait to be trained to do certain public work. You work, and then at a certain age, you're freed from that physical work and that exists in the temple system that also exists that's the process of gathering wealth you know the biggest determiner to figure out if somebody's going to be poor or wealthy you take all the social factors you can go married unmarried man woman education level whatever else you know the biggest determiner is how old a person is if you work longer you store up more wealth 
That's the biggest determiner for figuring out whether a person is likely to be poor or wealthy. The older a person is, the more likely they are to be wealthy. Now, you also have a magnification of effects across time. So if you're you know, wasting your money, and if you're not working hard, as you get older, you're going to tend to not make as much progress. But if you do work hard and you save, you invest, you are uh, wise with resources, you're going to find a general tendency towards the differentiation and the maximizing. So those are the things that you see. So the older are in power, the older have more money, and the result is they have resources and they have lessons to teach, and they have resources to deploy those lessons. Now, verse 21 moves into power. So we have the beginning part is about the use of power and the idea of wisdom and the idea of discipline. And so take that. We've had over and over again the teaching in Proverbs that it's important to teach the young, that it's important to direct the strength of the young to profitable work, and that it's important to discipline. Discipline with the rod. Discipline with physical pain. Who are you going to believe? Modern psychology and all of the institutions of the world that teach you that spanking is bad, or the Bible. Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 1. Here's the sort of second section now of this introduction. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water, or you could say channels of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. So what's the idea there? The thoughts of kings' minds are as easy to direct for God as it is for him to direct water with plumbing. The idea that you can dig a hole in the ground and you know where the water is going to go. How easy is it for you to figure out which direction water will flow when you dig a trench? I dig this trench. It gets lower over there. I'm going to pour water in. Where will the water go? It is like that for God to direct king's thoughts. He does not find it difficult. It is easy for him to control the thoughts of kings. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Now, if he does that with kings, what do you think he does with dukes or governors or lesser magistrates or successful doctors or less successful doctors? Remember, remember the middle of the class in the medical school. What do you call him? A doctor. And the guy at the bottom of the class, what do you call him? A doctor. Same with law school. You have these people that get out, and whether they're super competent or low competency, they still have this place of prestige, and the Lord can turn their hearts just as easily as great kings. And how about people who are less impressive? Which ones does God has a hard time controlling the thoughts of? Are there any of them? He turns the thoughts of kings wherever he wishes. Verse 2, 
Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. God controls the hearts even of kings. And God weighs the hearts of every man. God controls the heart of every man, and God weighs the heart of every man. I should remind you of Romans 9. Does the potter, does the pot say to the one who made it, why have you made me like this? And that's what I should remind you of. He both controls the heart and he judges the heart. Now, another thing that's revealed here is the fact that every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Everybody picks what they think is best all the time. If you chose it, it's because you thought it was best or you would have chosen something else. And at the same time, the way you evaluate it is the problem. God doesn't just weigh what you did. God weighs the weighing mechanism of your heart. God evaluates whether or not your valuation system is right. God examines whether your philosophical system is right. And all of your choices come out of what you value, what you believe is true and real and good. And those beliefs, because we are changeable, they change constantly. Even in the Lord Jesus Christ, it was changing constantly. Here's how it was changing constantly in his humanity. He was always learning more. And so it was being added to in his human nature. He was always learning more. He had a new situation and applied the system of truth to a new situation and had a new judgment that was attached on and he always concluded rightly. With us, we do not always conclude correctly. And so every man is found wanting. Every man except for Christ is found to not weigh properly in the heart. And God predestines all of these things. And so justice and power are both found maximally in God. And so we have this idea of how should humanity be ordered in verses 29 and 30. And in verses 1 and 2, we have the relationship to God. So here's, here's sort of the uh, horizontal relationship, and then here's the vertical relationship, one after the other. And then it moves into the body. Verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. This connects down. This is a bridge from verses 1 and 2. Because verses 1 and 2 talk about God controlling the king and talk about how God weighs the intentions and everyone does what they think is right. And so one of the common errors is people go, well, if God's the good, then I'm going to go worship God. And I'm going to worship him in a costly way. I'm going to sacrifice to him. And then when you leave, you go and do what you want and don't try to apply the law of God. That is a problem for humanity. And God says, doing righteousness and justice is more acceptable to me than sacrifice. Using power to do what's right, using authority to administer justice is better than offering sacrifice. It's better to do justice without worship than to do worship 
and do no righteousness and justice. We should obviously do both. This isn't an either-or scenario. We should do both. But if you were picking which one's worse, worshiping and then not doing justice and not doing righteousness is worse. That's called taking the Lord's name in vain. You have a greater responsibility. There's a greater penalty. So we should obviously do both. And we should worship. We should use worship not in vain. We should use worship so as to grow in doing righteousness and justice. In fact, worship done unhypocritically feeds justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness aren't even really possible without worship. And so the worship of God, the taking in of the word, the receiving of the gospel, what that does is it makes it so that we are able, we are empowered, we are strengthened and supplied and nourished to be able to do justice and righteousness. And so what we have here is a tying together of the last two verses of 20 and the first two verses of 21, and we're told about the relationship of the vertical and the horizontal. The relationship that's vertical helps to make it so that we are able to have rightly ordered horizontal relationships. And to think that we can have a good relationship with God while hating our brothers is foolishness. Now, in Christ, our imperfect our imperfect love of God, our imperfect love of our neighbor is not the basis of a relationship with God. The basis is the righteousness of Christ. But the idea here, the problem that's being put forward is this effort to act like you love God while at the same time not loving neighbor. And that is shown to be hypocritical. First John has the same sort of message. It says, you know, somebody says they're a brother and then they hate their neighbor and then they claim to love God, they're lying. And the same thing is told in James. This is how we evaluate people's professions of faith. This is how we understand the public way of examining people. So, verses 4 through 8, we get to the pursuit of wealth by the wicked, which, you know, the thing is, doing work, doing honest labor, is a way of displaying virtue. It's a marketplace virtue, and it's a way that young people are supposed to use their work. They're supposed to work they're supposed to use their strength to work and to generate wealth. And what we start with is sort of the best case scenario. A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked or sin. Think about this. You go, okay, yeah, a haughty look, right? Being arrogant, that's sin. A proud heart, being proud inwardly, that's sin. But the plowing of the wicked is sin. When an unconverted person does something that's commanded in the law of God, it's sin. It's sin because they don't do it in faith. And whatever's not of faith is sin. It's sin because they don't do it to the glory of God. And whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we should do it to the glory of God. It's sin because they do it with pride. It's sin because they do it with arrogance. And so even when you see an unbeliever working hard at their honest labor to create a product or service for somebody else, it's sin. Now, verse 5. 
The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. Working diligently gains wealth. Hasty work is shoddy and over time leads to poverty. These are, look at the word surely. (laughs) The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. But those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. The emphasis there on this tendency. The tendency is strong with this one. Verse 6. Getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. Deception and fraud are motivated by the misunderstanding of reality. See, what happens is you believe the lie that lying can give gain when in reality, lying gives death. That's a type of hastiness. And part of what's happening here is even the appearance of diligent work by the wicked is a delusion. The idea here is if you don't believe in a long-term goal, a lasting goal, the result is going to be a sort of hastiness. And so, there's also going to be a tendency towards fraud. And part of that is, hasty work where you cut corners is a type of fraud. It's a type of deceitfulness. It's making something that's inferior, providing a service that's inferior. And you're doing that while representing it to be something else. Getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. The violence of the wicked will destroy them. What we have is there's a number of sort of ironic scenarios here. This is the way in which the sin destroys itself. You know, it's funny, you, you, people who are familiar with Immanuel Kant, right, he's supposed to be really wise because he came up with this idea of the categorical imperative. It's supposed to be, you know... Things are evil if they are destructive to the end that you're ultimately trying to accomplish. And it was like, wow, this is a really great idea. Where did you come up with that? Well, he probably stole it from the Lutheran parents that taught him the Bible. Because it's all over the place in the Bible. But it's not sufficient by itself. It's not sufficient by itself. Because we can't get the nature of reality by just squinting real hard. You can't. By your experience, if I just grab the podium hard enough, can I get the reality of the podium into my soul? How many tactile experiences do I need before the reality breaks through the phenomenal noumenal gap? It doesn't work. And he recognized that problem and yet doesn't understand how ultimately, if we're going to have the things that we're considering with the categorical imperative. If we're going to have terms, if we're going to have concepts, we're going to have categories, we're examining them, and we've derived those categories from our experience, then what's going to happen is we're not going to be able to properly evaluate their natures. We're not going to be able to see the ends perfectly. And so it is insufficient. We need the law of God. And the law of God shows us the way in which violating his law is actually self-destructive. Now, in a highly Christian culture, where everybody's accustomed to the Word of God, you can kind of plausibly 
pull at that. You can kind of say, you know, everybody kind of knows what's right and wrong. And in that context, we can say, you know, let's examine the coherence of the, the claim of one course of action versus another and look at its tendency. And we're going to have a sort of built-up reservoir of wisdom where we're able to say the tendency is something that we all kind of know what's going to happen because we got the tendency from the Bible. So what does the Bible teach us? What does it show us about reality here? It says that when you lie, you think you're getting gain, and you do that because you're trying to get gain, but in reality, that's a fantasy, and you will get loss, you will get death. Then verse 7 does the same thing with violence. The violence of the wicked will destroy them. Now, the literal language there is, the violence of the wicked will drag them away because they refuse to do justice. In other words, God has structured reality in such a way that if you do unjust violence, the result is that your own violence will drag you away. It will do violence to you because you refuse to do justice. If you use unjust violence, there will be forces that make it so that you are destroyed. You are kidnapped. You are enslaved. So using force to try to dominate, to control, to get what you want, we, we have, you know, Jesus tells us, and he who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. Well, that's a, that's a double meaning statement, right? The idea is, first of all, if you live by the unjust use of the sword, the appropriate penalty is the use of the sword to subdue that criminal. That's the just penalty. At the same time, we know the unjust use of the sword tends towards destruction of self by violence. Okay, that's, the, that's the double wisdom there. Liberals, liberal churches used that, took it, took the second meaning that, you know, the idea that if you use the sword, it tends towards your own self-destruction. And they then made that say, that contradicts the first meaning. And they tried to show themselves to be very wise by showing that they couldn't read the rest of the Bible. And so, this statement is designed to be thought-provoking, but it's supposed to be thought-provoking in providing both meanings. The just penalty of unjust violence is violence as a punishment. And when you use unjust violence, it tends towards violence coming on you. The refusal to do justice brings curse. Verse 8. The way of a guilty man is perverse, but as for the pure, his work is right. This is the teaching that inward corruption breeds outward corruption. The way of a guilty man is perverse. If you're a guilty man, then your way, what you do, is going to be perverse. But as for the pure, his work is right. Remember the Lord Jesus says, you know, well, we're told that this is a Pauline letter, forgive me. To the pure, all things are pure. So, as for the pure, his work is right. The inward cleanness generates 
clean work. It makes clean outworkings. And so there's an interesting kind of alternate way of wording that first part. It's as opposed to the way of the guilty man is perverse, it's the way of a man is perverse and strange. You can, you can take that word guilt and have it refer to the idea of the man being a strange man. The way of a man is perverse and strange, but as for the pure, his work is right. If you, if you view it that way, this is more of a contrast between God and man. Okay, so it's true in terms of the inward breeds the outward, but the intention of the proverb, I'm not sure, but it may be the idea of the comparison between God and man. So verse 9, it's the bridge. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. So we've just gone through the pursuit of wealth by the wicked. And we've seen how dominion work by the wicked is often perverse and often results in actually, rather than generating dominion value, oftentimes there's self-destructive, there's a deceit, there's lying, there's violence. And so the efforts to dominate are instead a sort of um, wrongful pursuit of dominion that doesn't help the other people around them. And so we get to the idea of, of the woman in the house, and we've seen the criminal man in verse 9, better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than a house shared with a contentious woman. Well, a house has a roof for the purpose of protecting those who dwell in it from the elements and from outsiders. It's a space. A house is a space where a woman is given special reign, special authority to manage the household, to work, to magnify the home as a domain. Right? The woman is the despotess of the oikos, is what we're told in the in the New Testament, and she's also supposed to be a keeper or manager, a worker of the home. So she's to manage the household, and she's to magnify the home as a domain. She's to glorify, beautify a home. And she's to focus on the blessing of her household. Those are sort of the three special callings of the woman. Manage the house, magnify that house, and focus the work on the blessing of her own household. Now those three special things makes it so that she's able to effectively work well with a husband who is a head of house. The shared entity of the household, the shared estate being built, is the way of cooperating together. Now, if a woman fights her husband rather than supports and submits to her husband, then it's better to forsake the benefits of having a roof over your head and live on the roof itself. The roof serves as a sort of wall under your bottom between you and the contentious woman. Nothing to stop the rain. That's the image. Women, you have an amazing power to drive out the invading force of men, to make them want to retreat. You can drive away men very effectively. Or you can make the home 
into a glorious and beautiful space. The violent or defrauding man is now compared to this woman. And we, we understand. You look at crime statistics. Right? I said this at the beginning, but overwhelmingly, who commits violent crime? Men. And who nags? Women. Is this morally equivalent? No. But they are of similar kind. There's a sort of violence and defrauding. A woman in marriage commits herself to obedience. And so, when driving the man out, it's a sort of violence. When not giving the respect, that's a sort of defrauding. And so I have given for you Daniel Webster's definition of a shrew. And I think that the point of this section in talking about the contentious woman is to encourage the taming of the shrew. That's, that's why Proverbs lays this out. What is a shrew? A shrew is a peevish, brawling, turbulent, vexatious woman. It appears to have originally been applied to males as well as females, but is now restricted to the latter. This was as of 1828. It's a very different culture now. The man had got a shrew for his wife, and there could be no quiet in the house with her. That's a citation from Lestrange. So that's Webster's discussion of that term. Verse 10. We now get to the idea of the righteous triumphing over the wicked. And this idea of the righteous triumphing over the wicked involves dealing with the violent, dealing with the defrauder, and also dealing with the subduing of the unruly wife or children. So men, you're called to lead in society, subdue criminals, subdue tyrants. You're called to lead in the home, subdue unruly wives, and to subdue unruly children. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. Think about this. This is a good self-check. Do you think well of anybody? Are there people that you say, I love this person, I care for this person, I'm actively seeking the good of this person, here are people that I think well of, here are people I respect, here are people that I see gifting in. The general tendency of the wicked is to not have favor toward anyone. When the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. So, People who do wrong need discipline or punishment, depending on the authority you have. The scoffer, when a scoffer is punished, the expectation is not that the scoffer will learn. We've seen this a lot. It's an interesting thing. This is repeated over and over again in Proverbs. This idea that, okay, let's we're gonna there's gonna be a punishment of the scoffer. And the result is that the simple is made wise. The example. Right? One of the things that scoffers seem useful for is they are more likely to commit great sins that need discipline, and that's a really great object lesson for the simple. Right? One of the nice things about the scoffer is they get to receive some beatings, and the simple get to see it. And that means that you can give less beatings to the simple, because they see those beatings of the other. Now, the word here for, for punished, um, this one might be translatable to fining, like extractions of wealth. It could be forced labor. It could be money taken. 
Whereas earlier on, there's the idea of the rod, right? So it seems like finding or taking something from the scoffer and earlier on the beating, right? So this could be referring to a beating, but this is sort of an ambiguity in the Hebrew. So when the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. The word instructed there, there's this word for skill in Hebrew, haskel, and this is sort of a verb form of that. So the idea is when he gives his attention to the skill of somebody else, like the person punishing the scoffer. If you observe somebody else, if you're wise and you observe somebody else rightly using authority, rightly using their wisdom, then you will also observe that and you will receive knowledge as you think about it. So here's, here's the encouragement of this text. You who lead, lead well. You think you have a scoffer under your authority? Do your duty. The simple will be made wise, and other wise men will benefit from your exercise of wise rule. It has a magnifying effect. You think the scoffer can't be corrected? First of all, you don't know that. Secondly, the simple will be made wise. Thirdly, the wise will be made wiser. There's a ripple effect of positivity of wise rule. That includes other children. Verse 12, the righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. There's a lot of the use of the word wicked. God destroys the house of the wicked. He overthrows the wicked for their wickedness. Why, why would we care about that for the house? Because households are where power and heritage are built up. In America, we have so sadly lost sight of the glories of house building, of estate building, of passing on heritage, of giving children a name and a place to be, and helping them to understand they have an identity in a family. We have such an individualistic perspective. We fail to see the household, and we don't let employment and service in a household take on the value that it does. There's this sort of lack of understanding of the way in which we serve those who own the property. (coughs) The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. Like God knows they're wicked. God is planning to overthrow them. God is going to do it. So here's the justice and power of God. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. One of the reasons you might choose to not try to help the poor, even the worthy poor, is you might be concerned about the wicked. You might be concerned about using up your resources. You, you might think, you know, there's, there's so much evil out there. I don't have resources to help my neighbor who's in need right now. And so there's this desire to protect yourself. Well, God says, Look, if you have the cry of the poor, you hear it and you don't heed it, then when God, when you cry to God, you will not be heard. So it's this idea that you hear the cry of your brother and you know that you have one you can cry out to who is more powerful. 
and you lose some blessing, you lose some of the providential help that you might have received if you don't help your brother who's in need. Does this mean you should indiscriminately give to everybody who's poor who asks you for anything? No. The Bible has other texts about the poor. If you don't work, you don't eat. That's one of them too. The Bible is a system. It fits together. So you take all those together, the worthy poor. But in particular, especially in the context of a covenanted brotherhood, we should care for each other's needs and know that God will provide for us. And if we shut out each other in need, then the result is that we can expect that God will shut the windows of heaven from which he might have poured out blessing upon us. On the other side of this, verse 14, a gift in secret pacifies anger and a bribe behind the back, strong wrath. The idea here is, if you're trying to do something where somebody's enraged, most of the time when people are enraged about something, there's some honor component to it. If you try to bring about peace by either restitution or a gift, or if you even were trying to wickedly bribe somebody, understand this mechanic of reality. Doing it in public reduces its effectiveness. Is this commending bribing in private? No. What it is doing is it's helping you to remember. Do you think about how stupid it would be to give a bribe in public? Providing restitution publicly is similar. What you want to do is you want to provide the restitution and you want to provide the saving of face, the giving of the honor to the other. Let them end the wrath, end the conflict, and look good and provide the restitution. If you want it to be public, go to court, and then you'll be ashamed, and you'll wish you had allowed that to happen. That's the idea. Verse 15. It's a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. So, people think, I don't want to do justice because it's hard, because it's painful, because it's costly. But when you are just, it's a joy to do justice. This, you know, with the question, this is an old question. Is he who does justice even against his desire more virtuous? Or is the one who desires to do justice, who loves justice, who finds it a joy to do justice, is that one more just? You're typically less just if you're not wanting to do justice there, right? Different situations possibly, but let's say it's the same situation. You're looking at somebody who's less just if they don't want to do the justice. Now, overcoming that temptation, they should certainly overcome the temptation. But if you want to do justice, you would find it a joy to do justice, that indicates that there's a greater manifestation of justice in you inwardly. And that's where you want to get. You want to get to the place not where temptation feels strong and you're overcoming it. You want to get to the place where Temptation is weak because of how glorious what is good is appears to you. That's the ordering of the soul that occurs where there's a reduction in the power of evil. The destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. What's happening here is this idea that, look, the good life of doing what God commands results in the joy of enjoying good works. Whereas, when you 
have a habit of sin, when you have a habit of injustice, you, even if you find delight in your injustice, even if you habituated yourself, even if you've habituated yourself to delighting in injustice, there is destruction to come. There's a sting in that joy. And so there's a way in which you can have a more pure joy by being habituated to do justice. A man who wanders from the way of understanding, verse 16, a man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. You know, we are called to go on a path towards a goal. The law of God tells us that path. It's also a lamp unto our feet. But the wandering about, away from the way of understanding, you think you're going to explore, you're going to try things out, you're going to look to find your own way as opposed to the way that God has revealed. There is no way to find satisfaction in that. And the only kind of rest it will give is a resting, a permanent dwelling in the assembly of the wicked, the assembly of the dead. Its destination is death. Verse 17, He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Right? Sometimes people think, you know, if you can be motivated by luxury to work hard, then you can use that to be rich. But if the motivation is the luxury, the richer you get, the more luxuries you enjoy, the less the luxuries will be fulfilling, the bigger toys you need. And aircraft carriers are very expensive, so it's going to be very hard to get to those size toys when that's what you need to be satisfied. So this idea that the luxury is not the good, the luxury is not able to provide the satisfaction, you have to have some other goal in mind. And money is about being able to do good works. It's not about being able to have ever-increasing luxury. So the love of wine, the love of oil, the love of pleasure is a wrong ordering of the soul. Verse 18, The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous, and the unfaithful for the upright. The wicked wicked are a ransom for the righteous, in the sense that the wicked give up their lives unintentionally for the good of the righteous. The unfaithful give up their lives unintentionally for the upright. This is told to us elsewhere. Though the wicked pile up silver-like mountains, it's for the righteous. Though Jeff Bezos make a million distribution centers for one-day delivery of prime, it is for the elect. Steve Jobs had no intention of recording this glorious sermon on the two iPhones that are sitting in front of me. And yet, there they are. The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous, the unfaithful for the upright. There is this way in which the wicked give up their lives for the righteous. And that is the ironic storytelling that God does. That is over and over again what history is about. He causes evil to serve the good. He causes evil to serve the good. We have in Genesis 50 this idea of, you know, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and even though they meant it for wickedness, 
God intended them to sell Joseph into slavery for good. He planned for his brothers, God planned for Joseph's brothers to sell Joseph into slavery so that good could come about. The structure of reality, the story of history, the plan of providence is the design of righteousness triumphing over wickedness. In layers, by degrees, in the same direction. Verse 19. Better to dwell in the wilderness. Not even a house anymore. Better to dwell in the wilderness. I hate camping. I hate it. Than with a contentious and angry woman. Better to dwell. And you can translate this to in the land of desert. When you... This uh, the word for desert is a deserted place. You know, the wilderness is a wild place. The wild, as opposed to the tamed, uh, is not fitting for man. There are not the accoutrements for man's dwelling, and there are not other people to divide labor and trade goods and services with. Better to dwell in the place absent of those things than with a contentious and angry woman. Now, before it was a contentious woman, we've added the word angry. Contentious and angry woman. Now, the idea here, what is this about? Like, you have this set of proverbs about power and justice, and we keep having these punctuated lines of, hey, contentious women are bad. That is there because the book is focused in writing on men, but is trying to say, be aware of the wicked woman, and women, be aware of not being a wicked woman. And so, in this warning, in this danger, the criminal man can destroy civilization, destroy trade, destroy the benefits of trade, and the contentious and angry woman can destroy all the benefits of civilization. It's better to have no civilization than to dwell with a contentious and angry woman. And so, why is this mentioned about women so much? What's one of the things that happens? In the curse, the woman is said to want to rule over her husband, and there is pain in the bearing and raising of children. And so the relationships in the home which are the relationships that the woman has a special calling to focus upon, are the ones that there's curse on and a danger towards total failure in. And so there's this callback, this powerful callback to say, if we're going to subdue evil, men rule yourselves, men resist evil people, men exercise discipline, exercise justice, and women make the home into a place worth living. Women... Make the home into a place worth living. It's better to live on a housetop than with a contentious woman. And it's better to live in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Now, we get back into the positive construction of the home through the enduring work of the righteous. Verse 20, there's a, there's desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. 
That sounds like a desirable home. Desirable treasure, oil, I'm there. But a foolish man squanders it. Now think about that. You can have property. You can have a good wife who sets up hospitality. And the foolish man can squander it. He who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. Think about this in the context of the home. Do you do what's right in your relationships in the home? Are you merciful in the relationships of the home? He who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. If you are a man, head of a house, and you have a contentious and angry woman, apply righteousness and mercy. Verse 22. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the trusted stronghold. Remember earlier on we were told that a man who can restore peace, who can win back one who's offended, is greater than the one who can take a city? We're being reminded of that. If somebody contentious and angry, well, a wise man knows how to climb over the walls. Analogy, maybe? Just analogy, maybe? Is there an analogy here? And brings down the trusted stronghold. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. Do you think that relates at all to the refrain about the home? You guard your mouth and your tongue and you keep your soul from troubles. You will stop yourself from having the contentions and the anger poured out. But there's a need to positively teach. Just like with the third commandment we talked about earlier today, you know, we could say, oh, don't take God's name in vain, therefore I'm not going to talk about God. No. Oh, I need to guard my mouth, therefore I'm not going to say anything, I'm not going to lead, I'm not going to teach my, not my wife, I'm not going to wash her in the word. No. The avoiding of provocation for the home to be nice and the leadership with the teaching of wisdom. You can't scale the walls without active effort to get in. You have to try to communicate. You have to seek to lead. You have to engage. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name, he acts with arrogant pride. Again, same context. Apply this to the home. If you're proud and haughty and you scoff in the fights with your woman and act in arrogant pride, that is not going to create peace that will magnify contentions and anger. The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hand refuses to labor. Think about this in the context of ruling, exercising power in relationships. I don't want a contentious and angry woman. Okay, are you working hard at it? Are you putting your hand to the work? Are you washing your wife with the word? The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hand refuses to labor. Now you can apply this more broadly, in general. Do you not have the stuff that you wish you had? Do you have things that you want to get resources for? Work. The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. 
You generate more value, there's more ability to get resources. Find new ways to generate value. Verse 26, he covets greedily all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. Apply that to material goods. That's the natural way of thinking about it. But the context is about relationship. You can be a vampire in relationships and take and take and take. And you can also be generous. And if you're generous, I mean, this is, this is almost trite relationship advice at this point. You've all heard this. You know, if you give, you'll get back. Well, the reciprocity thing, it may be trite, but yet it is underapplied. It's clear in the Bible. You give, and the result is that there's a greater expectation that there will be a pouring back out. If stinginess in giving in relationship results in a stinginess in return. It generates contentious and angry women. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with wicked intent? Now, there are other Proverbs that talk about the sacrifice and there's a contrast to the prayer of the righteous. The idea is the righteous asks and God finds it good. The wicked can sacrifice and God finds it an abomination. Do righteousness in the relationships of the home and in economic relationships and pray. If you sacrifice to try to get things better, but you don't do righteousness, it's an abomination. God cares more about justice and righteousness than sacrifice. You bring it with wicked intent. God, I'm asking you for this. I'm giving you this so that I don't have to do this other duty I don't want to do. That's wicked intent. God doesn't accept that trait. A false witness shall perish, but the man who hears him will speak endlessly. Now that might feel at first like it doesn't make any sense. A false witness will perish, but the man who hears him will speak endlessly. If you're a listener to false witnesses, then that's a sign that you're a gossip. It's a sign that you're going to speak false testimony endlessly. You listen for false witness reports so that you have them to spread. Verse 29, a wicked man hardens his face. That's for the upright. He establishes his way. But one has a hardened will to do what's good, and the other one has a hardened face to avoid giving in to the requests of other people. Jesus set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. The wicked man sets his face like a flint when his friend asks him for help. So this idea of seeking to work in relationship is emphasized there. The endurance in relational work versus the deadness that comes from wickedness, the hardening effect, the contentious and angry woman creation powers of wickedness. So the conclusion. 
Think you have a better way? There's no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. These are the means God has appointed. These are the means that God has appointed. He's given to us justice and discipline to deal with criminals and young men and children, to help to raise them up, to prepare them, to give them strength, to help to get society in order. And he's given to us this relational giving and mercy and righteousness in the home to create beautiful homes and to beautify the wife. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. You're not going to get the blessing working against God. You do what God commands. You work with God. You have expectation of blessing. Do what God tells you to do for the circumstance. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but don't put your trust in the means as though it's powerfully going to do it without the blessing of God. Deliverances of the Lord. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members, and this was speaking rights. Mr. Cordova. Thank you for your teaching. I'll have a resource quick question. I'm pretty sure that you may know the answer, but uh, verses uh, 4, 21, and verse 27, uh, those are similar, correct? Yeah. For a haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. What was the other one? 4 and 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with wicked intent? So yeah, those are all examples of outwardly appearing good works, but because the inward is evil, the act is evil. Yes. Thank you. All right. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you bless the teaching of your word. And I ask that you would bless now the use of the Lord's Supper. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.